Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Well, let's go ahead and get started tonight. I know we're one minute early, but that'll be okay. Open in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Galatians. New Testament book of Galatians, I'll tell you what the, where the title for this series came from. I've called it a few things, and I've done multiple versions of this same series. This is, this is the very broad overview version, because we're going to take out Mormonism in one week tonight. Now, now I've, done it, I've done it in like three sections, like history, doctrine, modern stuff, and then I did that for Jehovah's Witnesses, but... We're going to kind of do a broad overview of one tonight and the next week, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, and the week after that, we're going to watch the documentary, American Gospel, which is about the prosperity gospel, word of faith movement. And then two weeks after that, Thanksgiving in between, we're going to have a session on the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement. Okay, so those are the three big uh, counterfeit gospels we're going to cover. I wanted to start with scripture from Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, and I referenced this Sunday morning in our worship service as well. Paul begins uh, Galatians a different way than he begins many of his other epistles. The other epistles are filled with thanksgiving and I'm praying for you. Uh, Ephesians does begin with a lot of doctrine, but Galatians begins with a pretty stern warning. Beginning in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, or your version might say another gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul is very clear here and throughout the other epistles as well, but especially here, there is no other gospel. There are those who come proclaiming what they call a different gospel or a different version, or tonight we're going to see another testament of Jesus Christ, but there is no other gospel except the one that the apostles preached, the one that we have in our New Testament, our scriptures. Uh, the consequences for preaching a so-called different gospel are severe. Paul actually doubles down on it here. He says it twice, if anyone. And it's interesting that Paul mentions, if even an angel from heaven. Now, I don't think Paul has in mind that angels would preach a different gospel. But I think what he has in mind is there are some who claim to see angels, as we'll see tonight, and definitely in Paul's time with the rise of the Gnostic heresy, that there's these visions and dreams or angelic beings that preach a different gospel or a different movement. And Paul says, if anyone, even an angel, preaches a different gospel, twice he says, let him be accursed. Now, does anyone have the actual stronger language 
in their Bibles, let them be damned. Because that's what the word means. Let them be cut off, anathema, cut off from Christ and condemned, damned in their sins. Why? Because they preach a different gospel and there is no other gospel that can save. So if we're going to know what the counterfeit gospels are, we must know what the true gospel is. Turn two books to the left and uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A lot of stuff gets put out there and they say, this is the gospel. Um, heard one time a fellow say, we don't need so much preaching Y'all might say amen to that. We don't need so much preaching, you know, handing a glass of cold water to someone or, or clothing the naked or visiting people in prison. He said, that is the gospel too. Now, I agree we should do those things as an outflow of the gospel. But to say that is the gospel is false because the gospel is good news. It's not good actions. It's good news that needs to be proclaimed. And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's start in verse 1, but I'll emphasize verses 3 and 4. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. There it is, the good news. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. So what is the content of that gospel Paul preached? Verses 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the basic tenets of the gospel, number one, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's where we have to stop for a moment and say, well, wait a minute. Don't Mormons believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? They do. At least that's what they say. Don't Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? They do. At least that's what they say. How about the Roman Catholic Church? Roman Catholic Church believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Roman Catholic Church believes a lot of things similar to what the Protestant Church believes, at least in terms of those basic things. So how do we say, well, if this is the gospel, and that's what Mormons say, and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses say, and that's what the Baptists say, and the Presbyterians, and the Catholics, isn't that all the same thing? Well, it can be, except we also have to look at what we call the response. We can have all of the information of the gospel correct, but if we get the response wrong, Paul says that can also be a false gospel. Turn back over to Galatians. I'm not have you turn a lot tonight. This is just this opening section. Back to Galatians chapter 2. Because what was going on in Galatia is that some false teachers called Judaizers had come into the church. And as you can tell by the name Judaizers, they were people who were at least on the surface believers in Jesus, okay? They had accepted Christ as the Messiah. But what they were trying to do was uh, lay the burden of the old covenant on new covenant Christians. So let's say you had a congregation in Galatia that had come to faith in Christ. And there's maybe let's just say half of them came from a Jewish background and half of them came from a Gentile pagan Roman background. And so what some of the Jewish Christians were beginning to say to the Gentile Christians was, 
Now, you're not as good a Christian as I am because you weren't Jewish. So what you need to do for the men, you need to be circumcised and have faith in Christ. You need to believe in Christ and observe the Old Testament dietary laws. You need to be, have faith in Christ and observe the Old Covenant feasts. And unless you do those things in addition to faith in Christ, you're not really a Christian. And Paul said, no, that's not the gospel at all. In fact, that is another gospel because they're adding something to the response of the gospel above and beyond faith alone. That's what we just talked about Sunday, justified by faith alone without the works of the law. So look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. We ourselves, Paul, he's talking about him and, and the disciples. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says clearly we are justified by faith alone apart from good works. Okay, we're justified by faith alone apart from good works so you see that the response to the gospel is just as important as the content of the gospel because even if i come to you and i say yes the gospel is the death burial and resurrection of jesus check and then you say what do i do with that and if i tell you anything other than believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved Repent and turn to Christ in faith. Receive what he has done. If I begin to add to that, Paul says even though you have the information correct, the response is wrong, and you still have a false gospel. Faith alone justifies. This brings us to this understanding of triage. I know Trina's here tonight, and she likes to, she's going to correct me on a few things, I'm sure. <laughs> Medical triage, and this is just a picture I found on the Google, Trina, so if it's not accurate, then, then uh, help me. Someone comes into the emergency room or with any medical situation, ambulance shows up at the house. Um, these workers are trained to do what they call medical triage to understand the need of the person. Okay, someone, for example, that needs resuscitation, that's had a heart attack or stroke or has been in a major car accident, that, of course, is level one priority. And then you kind of decrease in urgency down to category five, which I think they said like common cold or something like that. Uh, cut but not requiring stitches, the common cold. And so anywhere in between there, medical triage seeks to assess the situation, assess the injury, and say, what attention does this particular situation need? Is this urgent that requires attention right now, or their life is on the line, or does it decrease from there? And of course, that helps them understand how best to arrange the waiting room and how to address the situation on the scene. So just like you would do medical triage in the emergency room or on the field, we're going to do theological triage, and this is not original to me. Uh, Dr. Al Mohler at Southern Seminary was the one that kind of trademarked this phrase. Just like a medical professional would assess the need in a medical situation, we have to assess the priority of a theological difference and respond accordingly. Okay, So someone comes and says, um, I like your church 
and I would like I like your preacher maybe I like my Sunday school class and uh, but y'all use the ESV a lot and and this person maybe says I'm a I'm a I'm a King, King James only person well so that's fantastic you want to read the King James that's fine we're going to use the ESV we can differ on that and still be Christians Maybe in your Sunday school class you've had discussions about the end times. Maybe there's differences about where the rapture or the millennium. Some of that stuff we talked about this past summer on hot-button theology issues. Those might be secondary and tertiary and lower issues that we can have differences on. Okay, We're doing triage. So if Brent comes to me and says, Pastor Matt, I'm just really all about a mid-tribulational rapture. And Brent has never said that to me, so don't stone him or anything. And I say, well, Brent, I'm really all about a pre-tribulational rapture and seven-year tribulation and all the nine yards. That doesn't make he and I part of some different faith. We're still Christians, and we have to do a theological triage to understand what level of difference this is. Now, I'm going to pick somebody to be a heretic tonight. Jessica. Jessica (laughs) Jessica says she comes home one day, and she says, you know, Pastor Matt, she didn't call me that at home. That'd be nice, though. And she says, you know what, Matt? I decided I don't, I just don't believe that Jesus is truly divine anymore. I, I just think he's, he was just a man that had some divine qualities, but he wasn't truly God and truly man. I don't, I don't believe that. And she's never said that either, so don't go on to her. That would be level one, right? We need to address this right now. And as awkward as that would be between me and my wife, as a church member, we would need to, I shouldn't have picked on her. We should address that. Other issues that might come up, think about one like baptism, okay? Differences between Bible-believing Christians on the subjects or the mode of baptism. Do we pour or sprinkle? Is it, is it for babies and infants or just for believing adults? Now, we're Baptists. We believe, that's why we're Baptists, we believe that baptism is for confessing believers only and that it is by immersion. That does not mean that Presbyterians aren't Christians or Lutherans or Methodists or people that pour, sprinkle, or uh, on even adults. That does mean there's a difference that is high enough that we can't worship together because of what we say about baptism. But it doesn't mean that we're not Christians. Okay? So you have to assess the level. So many Christians today are not good about assessing the level of difference, and we're very quick to put something in that first order that is not in that first order. And we're willing to divide and argue and fight over things that are not first order that should be left to Christian liberty and differences that we can have with each other. Um, I think I saw on Twitter, and if I can phrase it right, um, Christian fundamentalism makes everything a first-tier issue. And by fundamentalism, I don't mean, you know, that we believe in the fundamentals of the faith, but I mean what we would call like a fundamental Baptist or something, fundamentalist. They take everything, and it becomes a first-tier issue. So women wearing pants, first-tier issue. King James only, first-tier issue. Rapture, first-tier issue. And they're not going to worship with you if you differ on any of those things. On the other end is theological liberalism. If fundamentalism makes everything a first-tier issue, liberalism makes everything a very low issue. So not just the things that we can differ on, but even the nature of Christ, the nature of salvation, the importance of the virgin birth or the resurrection. Theological liberalism says, eh, we can differ on those things. So you see, we have to hold the balance. 
Addressing first-tier issues, understanding there are lesser issues. When we talk about these counterfeit gospels, though, we're going to be looking for four red flags, all of which come up in those first-tier issues. Maybe one is a high second, and that would be the nature of Scripture. But all the rest are first-tier issues. That's why we differentiate between another Christian denomination, like Presbyterians or Methodists, and a cult, okay? Another gospel, a heretical group. And that's who we're talking about tonight with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So let's just jump right in. These are your Mormon missionaries. I don't know them. That's a Google image. But these, they all look like that, though, don't they? They ride their bikes around. I see them in our town all the time. They actually visited the church office last year at our invitation, but they sat and talked to us for a long time, usually with backpacks, ties, little name tags, says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormon missionaries, uh, as young as they are, are called elders, and they are required um, for two years to go on a mission in this way, and they are assigned uh, somewhere in the country or around the world to go. This is the main temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is, of course, the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, we'll talk about the temple work a little later. Um, the main uh, additional scripture for Mormons is the Book of Mormon. There are two other books we'll cover in a minute. But in addition to the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, they have the Book of Mormon. This is the one they're going to give you and they'll give it to you for free if you call or contact or they come by your house. They'll give it to you for free. And don't be afraid to take it. As long as you got your stuff, you got your facts, it's okay to read, it's okay to study and research. So I, I don't, you don't have to refuse it just because it's that. Take one. I have like three of them. And <laughs> I could probably have many more, but I kept three nice ones I found at some bookstores. But you see, it's another testament of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about what that means in a little while too. The rulership of the Mormon church, the Latter-day Saint church, is the, uh, what they call the Quorum of the Twelve, or the First Presidency. So a big factor of the Latter-day Saint church is that they believe they are the restored church of Jesus Christ, the one true church. And one of the ways they say this is proven is because they have the same government as Jesus' church. So Jesus ordained 12 apostles, and just like he had 12 apostles, the modern Mormon church has 12 apostles, one of which is called the president and is the chief president, seer, and prophet of the Mormon church. Okay, I don't know who it is now. It was Gordon B. Hinckley forever, and then it was Thomas Monson, and I think it's that guy on the bottom left, but I, I forgot his name. But that's the rulership. And so all the authority of the Mormon church is vested there. The decisions would go all the way to the top to them. Doctrine comes from them. The scriptures, as they're still cycling out magazines that come from their authoritative uh, visions and dreams and things like that, that comes through the Mormon church. Not that that happens often, but it has happened once, probably in the last generation. We'll talk about that in a little while too. So let's just jump into um, the basics. And this is where your blanks begin. We call it Mormonism, but it is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Founded by a man named Joseph Smith, actually Joseph Smith Jr., in the year 1830 in New York. Um, originally founded, I think, as just the Church of Christ, uh, not related to what we know as the Church of Christ. 
Same movement, that's interesting, we'll talk about that in a little while, but uh, originally called the Church of Christ and has uh, developed, I think, by the late 1800s to take on the name the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The LDS Church today claims almost 17 million members. To put that in sort of uh, understandable terms for us, the Southern Baptist Convention claims almost 17 million members. So the, uh, the largest evangelical Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention in the world, uh, is rivaled you know, only by, by the Mormon Church. And so all your other mainstream and even evangelical Christian denominations have less members than the LDS Church claims worldwide. And as I said before, the Latter-day Saint headquarters is in Salt Lake City, Utah. So let's get into a little bit of the history. And again, this is very broad. So there's tons of stuff you can find on YouTube. Uh, make sure it's good stuff. If you watch the Mormon stuff, just be careful. Understand it's their side and they're going to present it their way. Uh, there was a documentary I shared on the church's Facebook page a little while ago. It might have been more than a year. I might can repost it tonight after this. That's very, very good. And it's, a, it's, it's from the, the vantage point of ex-Mormons. Uh, not who abandoned the faith, but who came to faith in Christ and, and, and were saved. One was actually a missionary who got saved on his mission and had to stand up before all of his missionary buddies and tell them he had been saved and, and grace alone, faith alone, all that stuff. I'll post it tonight just in case you want to check that out. The real beginnings start with what Joseph Smith said was a divine vision in the year 1820. In the year 1820, Joseph Smith saw these two personages, he called them, and turns out that one was God, the Heavenly Father, and one was Jesus Christ. And the Heavenly Father motioned to Jesus Christ and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, sounds very familiar. And then Joseph Smith received instructions, being told that he was to restore, that's a big word for them, restore the one true church to the earth, okay? So he sees the heavenly father, says, listen to Jesus, my son, and then Jesus uh, gives Joseph instructions to restore the one true Christian church to the face of the earth. Now let's do a little historical background to see where all this is coming out of. We're in the middle of the 1800s. And if you know a little bit about church history or just American history from the 1800s, the middle of the 1800s would have been smack in the middle of what we call the Second Great Awakening. First Great Awakening being back in the mid-1700s with preachers that you might know the names of, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Charles and John Wesley, and a massive movement of conversions in Great Britain and in the American colonies. Uh, some of that movement actually was the, later on the, 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 the impetus for the pioneer spirit that came out west. So as people were coming out west, the Methodists and Wesleyans were very good about missionarying with the pioneers. Baptists, not so much. So it's interesting, as you kind of leave the American Bible Belt in the southeast, you move out west, and what do you see a lot of? Huge Methodist churches. Kansas City has one of the largest Methodist churches in the world. And so you can see kind of the history of this movement out west, all of it really starting right here in the middle of the 1800s with the Second Great Awakening. There's only one primary preacher in the Second Great Awakening. His name was Charles Finney. 
I don't know if anybody's heard that name before. A lot of problems with Charles Finney, uh, but nevertheless, God used him in a way uh, to see massive conversions. But one of the downfalls of the Second Great Awakening, and part of this was due to Finney's theological problems, and they were many, was a lack of organization. So whereas in the First Great Awakening, the Wesleys especially would go and preach, and as soon as they preached and they had converts, they were establishing churches. And as they established churches, they established circuit, writer, circuit writing preachers to go to those churches. Why the, like the symbol for one of the Methodist publishing houses is the man on the horse, the circuit riding preacher. Because you have several congregations and they were so well organized that when these churches were formed, they immediately had ways to get together and be a, a body. The Second Great Awakening was not so organized. So you had these massive like, field revivals, and there would be you know, dramatic hellfire and brimstone preaching, and people were experiencing all kinds of things like shaking and falling on the ground and under conviction and repentance and wailing and screaming and, and conviction. Um, but the thing they were not good at is plugging them into churches and helping them understand Christian doctrine after the fact. And so what you had was a bunch of people who had had some religious experience, some ecstatic religious thing happen in the field with the outdoor preacher, but then they didn't know what to do with it. So they had some sort of religious thing, some knowledge of Jesus, but no clue of what to now do with it or where to go to church. And so what you began to have was denomination after denomination after denomination after denomination popping up. And really, the 1800s is the birth of a lot of denominations. From the 1850 to the late 1800s, I mean, it, hundreds and thousands of different denominations uh, were birthed. This is where we come into what we call the Restorationist Movement. The Restorationist Movement said, you know what? All these denominations got it wrong. In the Bible, there was no denomination in the Bible, there weren't Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists. There was just the Church of Christ. And so the Restoration Movement, Alexander Stone and someone Campbell, last name Campbell, they organized what they called the Disciples of Christ. Later became split off into several different groups. There are Christian churches, a lot of those in Amarillo. And then there are Disciples of Christ churches, like our, our local First Christian Church is part of that movement, Disciples of Christ. And then there are the more conservative Church of Christ. That all come from this restorationist movement that was very frustrated with all the denominations and all the confusion. Joseph Smith, too, maybe having some religious experience, wanted to know which group to join. He wanted to know what the truth was. Was it the Baptist version or the Presbyterian version or the Methodist version? And he didn't know which church he needed to join to be a faithful Christian. So according to Joseph Smith, he spent a lot of time in prayer. And the only thing he could think of to do was what James says to do. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. And so Smith's only notion of what to do at this point was to pray to God for an answer. So Smith retreated to a nearby grove, it's now called the Sacred Grove by the Latter-day Saints, to pray. Specifically, asking God for wisdom, which group, which denomination, which church should I join? Now, it's at this moment in this time of prayer in the so-called sacred grove that Smith had this first vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ, two separate personages he claims to have seen. 
And that's the words he uses, two personages. Meaning, not just two persons, as we would believe the Trinity, two persons, one God, three persons, one God, but he believes there were two individual living human flesh and bone people standing in front of him in this vision. And their message was pretty simple, join no church. (laughs) They're all, quote, an abomination, and their creeds are evil. So Smith was told, don't join any of the churches. I'm going to show you, God says through the Lord Jesus in this vision, I'm going to show you how to restore the true church. And so you see there's a lot of linkage there. I'm not trying to say Mormons are Church of Christ and Church of Christ are Mormons. Not that at all. But from this same sort of impetus, trying to understand what do we do with all these denominations, what do we do with all this confusion on doctrine, shouldn't there just be one church? And that was kind of the drive of the Restorationist movement. It's the drive of Joseph Smith, at least according to the official account, to restore the one true church. Now, this was not the last vision that Joseph had. It's called the first vision for a reason because there was a series of visions that followed. And the main actor in these following visions was not God or Jesus, but an angel who called himself Moroni. If you see any of the official Mormon temples, uh, or you see maybe an emblem on some of the old books of Mormon, there's there's the the angel blowing the trumpet. That is uh, a depiction of the angel Moroni. And it was the angel Moroni who helped Joseph find new scripture. Out in the hills, would you imagine, (laughs) of New York, buried deep in the the earth was a set of golden plates. Uh, There's a picture, I think, a representation of them. They're they're not around anymore, if you could imagine. They were taken back to heaven. Uh, But there's these golden plates on a sort of binder and sort of like a three-ring system. And then Joseph Smith... Uh, translated what was on those pages into English. What was written on the plates of the golden plates called the Book of Mormon was what Joseph Smith called Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, which I think have been determined there was never such thing as Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. But he, he nevertheless translated what he saw, supposedly, into English, and that was then the Book of Mormon. Now, how Smith translated what was on there Um, And there's different accounts of this too, Uh, the gold plates. Smith translated miraculously using what he called seer stones. So in the Old Testament, we looked in Leviticus about the Urim and the Thummim, remember, and how those little stones were used to determine God's will for situations. Well, Smith supposedly had his own set of the Urim and the Thummim, these magical sort of supernatural stones, which according to many of the accounts, he put in... Uh, his top hat and as one of the scribes would go through the characters on the golden plates Smith would put his head into the the top hat so it was dark and Smith said there in the spiritual supernatural light one character one word at a time was revealed as he supernaturally translated this hieroglyphics into the book of Mormon which was published as a finished work in 1830. So 10 years after the first vision is the publication of the Book of Mormon and the founding of what he called the restored Church of Christ or just the Church of Christ. So the LDS Church was officially founded in 1830. Smith baptized himself and then his wife and his parents 
and then uh, many more who met, began, to met in this, began to meet in this small cottage. I think the town was called Fayette, New York. I don't know if they pronounce it like that. Uh, they might say Fayette, might be fancier, but they met in this, this cottage, and I think this is a restored version of that cottage, but that's what it would have looked like. Of course, they quickly began to face persecution and uh, were really forced to leave New York. And the first stop they made was in Illinois, Nauvoo, Illinois, to be precise. And it's in Nauvoo that we have really the first uh, temple that was, y'all get that? Everybody got the words? Moving fast through the history here. Smith's death is uh, interesting because once they got to Illinois, um, Smith's conception of what his calling was had changed considerably. Now we're talking a couple decades after his first vision. We're now kind of in the 1830s, 1840s. And Smith had kind of moved from this sort of humble prophet, seer, preacher to the, the leader of this growing group of Mormons that were persecuted, and, and persecution tends to bind you know, groups together, so they were strong, they were unified, and Smith was their like, unquestioned leader. So he not only now the prophet and apostle for this group, but sort of establishes himself as the king and the president of this group, and also the main lawkeeper and lawgiver. So a lot of power invested in one man. That often, often happens with these cult-type groups. And one of the things that Smith sought to do in Illinois was as different groups of former Mormons were splitting off, they began to print uh, things about Smith and the Mormon church, his version, that were unkind. Now, these people were not splitting off to join Baptist and Methodist churches. You know, once you have this kind of thing settled that we can just invent something new, it just keeps happening. And so these groups, were maybe some were having their own visions and their own dreams, and, and God told me to do this, and God told me you're not right on this, and so they would split off their own group. And one such group bought the, had a news press and began to print a news publication shedding light on Smith's false teachings. Maybe it was the beginnings of his teachings on polygamy and other things like that they began to draw attention to. Smith didn't like that. So Smith uh, basically <laughs> accumulated a small militia and went to take over this newspaper and seized control of it, the whole thing. So he's thrown in prison for treason, trying to take over this uh, publication. And while he's in prison, he and his brother Hiram and a few others were shot by a mob, and Smith was killed. Now, according to the Mormon version, of course, this is the martyrdom of Joseph Smith as he was an, an innocent man in prison being persecuted for his faith and, and they didn't like what they were hearing, so he was in prison and they came and shot him. But uh, history shows and, and documents prove that he sought to control that newspaper, was going to burn it to the ground, and so he was imprisoned and an angry mob of the other upset people came and killed him. So... Uh, that was the end of Joseph Smith. Now, now, of course, by this point, there are multiple versions of what the true Mormon church is. And this is what the LDS church does not tell you, and they don't want you to know, or and most of them understand, most of them don't know, that there were various groups at this time, after Smith's death, that sought control of the church. Smith's own son was seen as the next leader of the church. But he was rejected in favor of this man, Brigham Young, who was sort of, by acclamation, made the next prophet because of his age over Joseph Smith's own son and his wife, by the way. 
Now, Joseph Smith's son and his wife go on to form their own group, and it's still an existing denomination today called the Community of Christ. You can go online and find their headquarters and find where their churches are, and they claim, interestingly enough, to be the one true church. Why? Because they have direct lineage right back to Joseph Smith. Our founder was his son, and we follow the original teachings of Joseph Smith. Brigham Young introduces a lot of other things on the way out to Utah. So they stop in Ohio, they move to Missouri, they wind up in Utah, and Brigham's the one that takes them there. Brigham reinforces Smith's teaching on polygamy and other things. Uh, There was a doctrine called blood atonement that really truly existed, that someone could commit a sin so heinous and so vile that Jesus' blood could not forgive it. So what must happen to them if they ever hope to go to heaven? Well, they needed to be killed to atone for their own sins. And so uh, Brigham was a proponent of this doctrine called blood atonement. So you can go back and you can trace all these branches because what the modern LDS church, the big capital LDS Mormon church, Salt Lake City, Brigham Young Church, they'll say, no, we're the only church. And you Christians, you other Christians are so divided. You got Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholic and Methodists, and we're, we're just the one true church of Jesus Christ. Except all along the way, there were splinters and split-offs and disagreements and other denominations there as well. We were talking about the Sister Wives show over here on TLC. At the end of the 1800s, polygamy was disavowed by the main Mormon church. And to this day, in the Latter-day Saint church, if anyone is practicing polygamy, that is grounds for immediate excommunication from the official LDS church. But there are these fringe groups and other groups that claim to be the true church that still practice polygamy. And they point to that decision to say that's not the true church because they abandoned polygamy. And there's a really, really extreme version of the group called the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you remember in the news, it might have been 20 years ago, 15 years ago, a man named Warren Jefferts. Y'all remember this story, the compound out in Colorado or somewhere, and uh, just m- multiple wives, multiple teenagers and children. What did you say? Where was it? Where was it? Colorado. I was close, Colorado City, Arizona, and there's just a lot of child abuse and molestation and all kinds of nasty stuff, but they claim to be the original church, the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We still practice polygamy. We still do all the stuff. So that's just a, a bit of history. From Brigham Young to Utah, you have the building of Temple Square, the construction of the temple, the tabernacle, and you know by the 20th century, you have the choir, and, and Mormonism becomes sort of mainstream especially with the Tabernacle Choir uh, involved in all sorts of spectaculars on TV. And, of course, the Mormon missionaries come into your door with the friendly face and the smile and the Book of Mormon. And, hey, we're just Christians like the rest of you. So that message softens a little. And it's interesting how that happens. When the Mormon missionaries came to see us, it was very clear they didn't have any problem with us. Well, yeah, we got huge problems with you, uh, doctrinally, but they didn't have any problems with us, except they kind of did because according to Joseph Smith's own vision, And I got him to say this, we're an abomination. We're not the true church. We don't have the true doctrines. And it's interesting that they try to frame themselves in such a way to where there's really no differences. But the differences are so vast, and we're going to see a few of those now. Those four red flag sections. Let's start with the doctrine of God. According to Mormonism, God is an exalted man named Elohim. 
Now, in the Bible, the Hebrew word for God is the word Elohim, okay? But they claim this was God's personal, proper name as a man. This man, Elohim, was once a man like you and me who lived on a planet near a star called Kolob. Very much like our sun, a planet like ours, in proximity to its star that could support life. He was just a man like you and me who learned the principles of the gospel and grew and achieved exaltation, and he became God. He became God of, of course, planet Earth. So through this process of what they call exaltation, Elohim attained godhood over Earth and populates it with his spirit wife via spirit children now spirit wives and spirit husbands do the same thing that physical wives and physical husbands do and they produce spirit children to populate the planets that they're given control of so in this sense Elohim and his spirit wife or originally really in Joseph Smith's view and Brigham Young's spirit wives populated planet earth with these spirit children Now that brings us very quickly to the doctrine of Christ because according to Mormonism, Jesus Christ was the first spirit child of Elohim. Now spirit child means before they come in flesh, okay, before they're born on earth, we're existing with our heavenly father and heavenly mother or mothers in, in heaven. Jesus Christ was the first of Elohim's spirit children. Another one of Elohim's spirit children was Lucifer, An angel, a spirit who rebelled against Elohim and Jesus Christ over Elohim's plan of salvation. There was a great council of the gods, according to Mormonism, all the gods of all the various planets. And and Elohim was seeking counsel about how to save a sinful human race on earth. Now, Jesus said, now this is interesting, it shows you a little bit of where Joseph Smith was in his theological talkings with the Baptist churches and the Presbyterian churches, what he liked and didn't like. Jesus said, let's give people free will. Let's give people free will to choose or reject salvation for themselves. It was Lucifer who said, no, let's go with predestination and let's predestine people to heaven or to hell. And because Elohim chose Jesus' path over Lucifer's path, Lucifer got mad, rose up a uh, rebellion of all these other spirit children, what we call angels, and, uh, of course, were kicked out of heaven. Original Mormon teaching, and they have never repudiated this, original Mormon teaching says that in this great war between the armies of Elohim and the armies of Lucifer, those who were cowards and remained neutral, spirit children now, before they become humans, they were cursed to be born on earth with dark skin. Now this is part of the original Mormon teachings that they have never ever repudiated, and they won't repudiate. They won't, yeah, we're just, yeah. They, they won't repudiate it. And I had two missionaries in my hometown of Gastonia sit on my couch, and I said, do y'all, I mean, you really believe this, right? Yes, we believe it. And, and they don't hide it. So, uh, the story of the Book of Mormon, we'll talk about it in a minute, is between these two, two Israelite tribes that come to the United States, uh, the Americas, before it's the United States. And one of them is blessed with, you know, white, fair skin, and the Book of Mormon says they're so delightful to look at. 
while the others were cursed with, with this dark skin. And then there's this war between them and the dark-skinned ones wipe out the white-skinned ones and that's what's left. And so in the wake of that war, a white-skinned man named Mormon puts all this down on the gold plates and buries them and that's what Smith finds in 1830. So that's kind of the Book of Mormon in a nutshell. We'll get to that in a minute too. Spirit children, just keep that in mind. Jesus was the one called Jehovah we see in the Old Testament. And as a spirit child, like every other spirit child, was given a body. But he was given a special body because he was given his body in a relationship between Elohim and Mary. Now, I'm not sure how many modern Mormons would espouse this anymore, but it was part of Joseph and Brigham's original teaching that Mary would have been taken on as one of Elohim's sort of spirit wives, although she was a human. He had sexual relations with her and produced the human body of Jesus. This was to carry out what Mormons call the atonement. Now, we call it that too, but we mean something very different by it. How about the doctrine of Scripture? Um, the Bible, according to Mormonism, is the Word of God only as it is translated correctly. Large part of what Mormonism holds to about this whole restoration that was needed was that shortly after the death of the apostles, the original writings of the scripture were tampered with and what they call, quote, plain and precious parts were taken away. And so what was needed, you know, 2,000 years later, <laughs> what was needed 1,800 years later was a restoration of those missing parts. So, and this is something I, I tried to get the guy that came to the office on. So, I mean, you're, you're telling me that Jesus lived, died, established his church. It existed for less than 100 years and then it's completely gone for 1,800 years only for Joseph Smith to, to suddenly have the solution and restore the one true church. He's like, yeah, basically. That's, <laughs> that's what we're saying. There was no true church on the earth until 1830. 1,800 years later, uh, the church is restored because these missing parts of the Bible were now understood with the new scripture. The Bible needs the other scriptures to be understood correctly because those other parts restore the plain and precious things that are missing from the scripture. So when a Mormon talks about scripture, they might be talking about the Bible, uh, just maybe, sometimes. They're more often talking about the other books. So they hold the Bible, the King James Version, to be the, the word of God. They also have the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Doctrine and Covenants sort of comes in a series of visions of Smith and his followers with John the Baptist, and uh, Moses shows up, and Aaron shows up, and all the while they're kind of revealing these new things to them. So that's the Doctrine and Covenants. The Pearl of Great Price was a piece of parchment that Joseph had bought at an antique shop with an Egyptian, and you can, you can find if you have access to the Pearl of Great Price, or go online and just Google the picture. It was one main hieroglyphic type picture that Smith supposedly translated into the Pearl of Great Price. Since then, people actually knowing Egyptian hieroglyphics translated the picture and said it has nothing to do with anything that Smith said it had to do with. It's a funeral service. It's a mummification ritual. has nothing to do with anything. But of course, the Mormons would say that doesn't matter because Smith was giving the spiritual translation. And so they received that by faith. Uh, in addition to the scriptures, the Mormon authority is vested in its president and apostles. 
So this is the inner circle, just like Jesus would have had Peter, James, and John. This is the inner circle, including the, the, the current president and the two uh, highest-ranking apostles in the Quorum of the Twelve. Revelation is ongoing. And as I said earlier, um, they don't just have new revelations every day. The, the most recent revelation that was given through the church was in 1978, when the apostles said that African Americans or black Christians, black Mormons, could now receive the priesthood. Because until 1978, uh, black Mormons could not attain the priesthood. And that, that was a key factor in their understanding of salvation. In 1978, God says, okay, I changed my mind. Uh, black people can now receive the, the priesthood. It hasn't happened since then. So in salvation, before humans are born on earth, that was a lot of words, before humans are born on earth, we exist as spirit children in heaven with Elohim, and we are sent to earth for testing. So uh, populated in heaven between Elohim and his heavenly wife, we are given our spirits, and then our spirits take on bodies and are born on earth. Uh, We are sent here for testing as part of this process called exaltation. Humans are born sinless, according to Mormonism, but are susceptible to sin because of the fall of Adam and Eve. So, uh, uh, rejection of the doctrine of original sin as we would know it, that we are born sinful human beings under the condemnation of God because of the fall. They say, no, we are only guilty for our own sin, not for Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve's sin just creates the environment whereby we are susceptible to sin. So we are born pure and innocent and holy according to Mormonism, and it's only that which is around us that causes us to sin. Jesus' atonement, which they believe begins in the Garden of Gethsemane when he began to shed his blood uh, with his sweat drops, provides a general resurrection for everybody. So about 99.999% of people, according to Mormonism, will go to some version of heaven. And we'll talk about that in a minute, too. Very few will go to outer darkness or their version of hell. Um, And really, that's only reserved for apostate Mormons, those who had uh, gotten really high up in their faith in the Mormon church and then rejected the Mormon church. But although there's a general resurrection for everybody and most everybody goes to some form of heaven, there are degrees of glory or degrees of heaven, and how far you get <coughs> is up to you. Jesus provided the basic way. Here's, uh, he brought you to level one, <laughs> and uh, now it's up to you to, to climb as high as you can uh, in the exaltation ladder. So what can you do according to Mormonism? Well, first of all, starts off good enough, faith in Jesus Christ, Particularly Mormon Jesus, that's Mormon Jesus, really white, really white guy. Uh, <laughs> baptism, you have to be baptized in the Mormon church. You don't get baptism from anywhere else, baptized in the Mormon church. Uh, temple work, so once you climb high enough as a child or teenager, you can begin to do temple work. You get invitations to go, and you can be baptized on behalf of dead people. Uh, you can receive uh, temple marriage. That's probably the next one we can talk, temple marriage. So this, the temple marriage is what binds you to your wife for all eternity. 
So when you receive the temple marriage, that means you're going to go on, just like Elohim and his wife, to populate earth, you're going to go on to populate your own planet with this one that you've been sealed to for what they say is time and all eternity. Uh, Another thing you can do is to obey the word of wisdom. So no drinking, alcohol, no tobacco, uh, supposed to be no caffeine. But it's interesting with Mormons how there's a difference on caffeine or did, did Joseph just mean tea and coffee? Because some of them will avoid tea and coffee, but will still drink Cokes and eat chocolate. Why? Because, well, Joseph only heard about tea and coffee. So that's, that's all that's in the official word of wisdom. But Yeah, or Pepsi, you can drink a cola. How about that? But some of them, uh, some of them just reject that altogether. So that guy has a, a beer in one hand and a Snapple in the other and a, and a cigar in his mouth. And of course, do your mission. Uh, do your mission. Be a faithful member of the, the, the Mormon church. Attain the priesthood. Do the endowment ceremonies. All that's part of the temple, the temple work that I mentioned earlier. This all is part of this process called exaltation, which is the ultimate goal for faithful Mormons. Exaltation, which is, just to put it bluntly, the process of becoming a god. And it's only for men, by the way. Only for men, the women get to tag along and give birth forever. Okay? But the, the, men, <laughs> the men are uh, exalted to be gods. So just as Elohim and his wife uh, became gods of our planet, uh, faithful Mormon men and their temple-married wives and, and their families can go on to become gods of their own planet as well. Well, I mean, uh, hopefully they do their own thing, so they grow up and they become gods of their own planet. Yeah. Uh, they're part of their family, though. Yeah. Oh, they are big on bloodlines. Yeah, and they used to be bigger. Yeah. Uh, they're big on that, Trina, because of the baptism for the dead. The genealogy stuff, is what you mean? Yeah, because when you go to do your temple work, you can be baptized on behalf of dead people. So if they're, in the, and if they're in a lower portion of heaven or if they're still in prison, which is that kind of mediating period, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, they can be elevated higher as someone is baptized for them on earth. So that's why they keep track of that. So you can go back and be baptized for your seventh great-grandfather. Yeah, you can find his name. So a lot of those Mormons own a lot of those genealogy sites and things for that reason. Uh, this is what the testing on earth is all about, to, to make yourself worthy for this calling to be God or a God so salvation is about proving oneself to be worthy of Godhood Jesus death and atonement make it possible but the rest is up to you in fact that's exactly what their scriptures say in 2nd Nephi 25:23 in the book of Mormon we are saved by grace after all we can do So the Mormon view of grace is absolutely we're saved by grace. But just like the Roman Catholic Church, just not grace alone. God's grace makes it possible. And God's grace meets you after you've done all you can do. Which would be an interesting jumping off point for some evangelism with some Mormons to ask them, are you doing all that you can do? And the inevitable answer has to be, no, I'm not doing all I can do. Well, so what hope do you have? And, of course, that's where we would say, well, the gospel is even better than that because you can't do nothing. The gospel has to do everything. So let's talk briefly about the Mormon plan of salvation here, and then we'll we'll have to wrap it up real quick. 
Um, you see up here on the top left the pre-mortal life, and the scripture references are from the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham, chapter 3. This uh, pre-existent life with Elohim and our Heavenly Mother. We are then given a body to live on earth, to, to be tested and to see if we're worthy of exaltation. So if you do all the right things, all the steps I said earlier, faith in Christ, baptism, endowment, temple marriage, mission, all the stuff you're supposed to do, um, you'll go to, after death, a place called the spirit world. And the spirit world is, is separated into two separate places. There's paradise and there's prison. Uh, bad people or non-Mormons go to prison. Good Mormon people go to paradise. And this is just a temporary holding place while things kind of finish up, you know, getting your account ready before you're able then to go to one of three glories or one of three heavens, to put it in our terms, the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, or the celestial kingdom. And these three kingdoms come from the words of Paul when he's talking about the kingdoms of glory. Now, Paul is literally talking about the sky and outer space and the heaven where God is. Smith took that and said, no, we're talking about three different heavens. Now, the good thing is everybody typically, generally, gets to go to at least here, which Smith says far surpasses the glory of earth, so that's a good thing. Better people go to the terrestrial kingdom. Only good, faithful Mormon men and their families go to the celestial kingdom. And from there you go on to exaltation to become God of your planet and so on. So let's talk about a biblical response very quickly. Okay, and I'm just going to give you the blanks and then we'll have to be done. Uh, but you can do a lot more research and reading and I'll post that video tonight. and You can watch that. That's an awesome documentary. Number one, first and foremost, God is not a man. God never was a man. Uh, he will never be a man. And by man, I mean human. God reveals himself using those masculine pronouns in the scriptures, so that's how we refer to him, father, he, him, his. He's revealed himself in that way, but he does not have a body of flesh and bones. That's a central tenet of Mormonism, that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. His name was Elohim, and he became a god. Jesus says, John 4, 24, I can't tell you how many Mormons I've talked to that have never heard this passage from Jesus. Jesus explicitly tells the woman at the well that God is a spirit. He is not a man like you and me. In fact, the Bible is clear that there is no other God at all. Now they'll say, well, there's no other God to us. <laughs> and that's what the Bible means. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's one God who created everything and he is the only living true God who was never a man but is an exalted uh, being, divine nature, divine essence that is eternal in his nature. Likewise, Jesus was not created. In the beginning was the Word. From the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the word was God. So God the Son eternally, eternally coexistent with the Father and the Holy Spirit before time. There was never a time when the Son was not. So anytime you veer off the path on your Christology, you know we're getting into false teaching. The Mormons do it with Jesus being born as a spirit child. And that was the beginning of his existence. And the Jehovah's Witness do it with Jehovah creating Jesus as the first of his creations. According to the Bible, Jesus is equal with God. Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. In him all the fullness of God dwells bodily because Jesus is God enfleshed. Jesus is God incarnate, to use the theological word. 
not only was the word with God as God, but in John 1.14, that word who was God and who was with God became flesh. Not a pre-existent spirit child of Elohim taking on a body, but the eternal God himself becoming a man. According to the scriptures, our scriptures, we are born in sin. Ephesians 2 says that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins in which, in which we all once walked. It says we are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. There was never a point when we were somehow some innocent, sinless creature. We are born under the condemnation of Adam and the fall. Furthermore, we can't save ourselves. Romans 3, like the entire chapter, really the entire New Testament, points us to this fact. We are incapable of working to gain or earn salvation for ourselves. It must be received based on what Jesus has done for us. And we receive that by faith. Jesus did not just make it possible for us to be saved, but Jesus bore our sin. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The substitutionary death of Jesus for sinners that accomplishes their salvation in full is central to the gospel. And if we lose that and we make the atonement just sort of this starting place where then we have to do the rest, we've lost the gospel. And Mormonism has lost the gospel there. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, only in what Christ has done for us. Lastly, we are saved by God's, uh, saved for God's glory, and will live with and worship Him for eternity. I mean, if Ephesians one and then the opening chapters of Revelation are clear. This is the purpose of salvation, not our exaltation and attaining godhood for ourselves, but ruling and reigning with God and giving glory and worship to him forever. And the Bible is clear that this is not about us. This is about God's glory, God's worship. And so that Mormon picture of exaltation reverses that whole thing and makes it very much about me and the glory of man, and attaining really my own worship, which is blasphemous. So what do we do? We study, we listen, we understand before engaging in debate. Taking time to learn in a setting like this, going to read and research and learn more. Because when we debate with people or we share the gospel, we want to accurately represent what they are saying. Otherwise, we're doing that logical fallacy of making a straw man, making a straw man that's easy to blow over. We have to accurately understand what the other side is saying in order to give an accurate response to it. And in our response, we must understand that it is our goal to communicate the gospel, not to win an argument. We should debate, we should defend the faith, we should counter false teaching, but at the end of the day, we should see Mormons or anyone lost in a false gospel. We should see them as someone desperately in need of understanding the gospel of grace. When you go, if you watch that documentary, um, the testimony of the young man who was a missionary, 
That's what he said made the difference. Going to the house of Christians who slammed the door on him, who were mean, who were uh, rude, turned him off. But there were Christians who shared with him the, the gospel and who said, listen, it's not about what you can do. It's about what's already been done for you. That's what made the difference for that young man. And I can't, I'm, I'm sure there's many more Mormons who have that similar testimony. So as easy as it is to pick on them and make fun of them and to slam the door, invite them in, be nice, be hospitable, and use that opportunity to hear what they're saying, but then to be equipped to respond with truth, all the while trying to point them to Jesus. Now there's so much more we could talk about with Mormonism. We could do a whole semester on Mormonism. Not going to do that. But you can go read and research for yourself. And if you want more info, uh, text or call or email, I'd be glad to send you whatever I can. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this evening. Thank you for bringing us together to study. I ask that you would center our focus and our hearts on the true gospel of Jesus. We thank you for that gospel of pure, unmerited, unearned grace that brings us into right standing with you through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Help us to trust that every day and help us to proclaim that every day of our lives and help us to tell that to others who are so desperately in need of it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.